my youngest son Judah and I uh, like to listen to the impossible questions on 99.3 in the morning. Anybody else listen to impossible questions in the morning? Yes, some of you do. All right, when, when Judah and I are going to school or going to work, we pop it in. We've got like about five minutes together, and it's kind of a little fun we have doing that trivia on the radio. And I don't remember the question exactly, but it went something like this. The question was, this was months ago, several months ago, it said something like this, 20, 25% of moms say their sons, teenage sons think, use this too much or use too much of this. 25% of moms say their sons use too much of this. Anybody want to take a stab? Oh, I didn't, there's like, cologne. It was cologne. I didn't, I didn't think that myself. You know, perfume and cologne are one of those things where less is more. Because those fragrances, but because those fragrances smell so good, it's just so hard not to do an extra spritz or two or three. Am I right? Um, I'm guessing we've all been in a room where maybe someone's perfume or cologne like filled the space. I know some have sensitivities to fragrances, and so you might know that more than you'd like to know. It can be overpowering sometimes. You can't miss it. And that's what the room must have been like when Mary took out about a pound or a liter of expensive perfume and poured it all over Jesus' feet out of grateful worship. You know, as we lean into our Thanksgiving week, I'm praying you're interested in having grateful worship. Would you like God to give you eyes to see his gifts his grace, where you're filled with joyful gratitude that spills out of you. And that's what I'm hoping to lead you towards this morning with the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, in the New Testament, if you don't have a Bible, there's, there are Bibles near you in the seats. Grab a Bible and open it to John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Starting in verse 1 of John chapter 12, this is what we read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took out a pound or a liter of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. One of the most important details to know about this story, to to get Mary's actions, to understand her behavior, is to understand what happened to this man named Lazarus. In the previous chapter, John chapter 11, we're told in great detail about some extraordinary events surrounding this man. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany. We don't know exactly how Jesus knew these three siblings because Jesus grew up in Galilee, which is way up in the north. And Bethany is a little village in the south just outside of Jerusalem. But as an adult, Jesus would make frequent trips to Jerusalem. And it seems from the Gospels that Bethany was his, one of his favorite places to stay when he would come. And so somehow Lazarus, his sisters, got to know Jesus quite well. In fact, when Lazarus got sick, his sister sent word to Jesus and said, to the, said this to him, sent this message to Jesus saying, the one whom you love is ill. Well, that's pretty close if you ask me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what happens next, let me briefly fill you in. Jesus doesn't leave to help Lazarus right away as is requested by his sisters. God's got a God-sized, Jesus has a God-sized plan in store And Lazarus eventually dies, dies from his sickness. His sisters are distraught. The village is in mourning when Jesus comes to town four days later. Now, a a little bit of everything is found in John chapter 11. Tears, truth, hope. But the climax of this episode is Lazarus being brought back to life. And just so that we know exactly what happens, let's just read that. It's in chapter 11. You can see it for yourself, starting in verse 38, just the chapter before. Look at uh, 38 of John chapter 11. reads this way. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Boy, it's hard, it's hard to imagine the kind of 
seismic event that this episode brought about. I mean, the world shook. Lazarus, a dead man for four days, was brought back to life. Think of the impact that would make. We know a ton of people started believing in Jesus. That's not hard to imagine, right? And that's actually what Jesus said. He says, I'm doing this on account that people might believe, Father, that you sent me. And people believed. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Lazarus. They were already losing control, influence uh, amongst the people because of what Jesus was doing. And now Lazarus being raised from the dead on on the command of Jesus only made their life worse. And so they thought, hey, if we kill Lazarus, We can say it was all a big lie because he's dead, see? But I want you to think about the kind of impact this made in Lazarus' own home with his two sisters, Martha and Mary. We're going to zero in on Mary because she's the focus of the story in in John chapter 12. So put put yourself in Mary's shoes. Imagine how this impacted her. Just consider the various layers on, first of all, she loved her brother. She and Martha begged Jesus to return so that he would be made well. She obviously cared for him. They grew up together. She had fond memories, I'm sure, of Lazarus over the years. It's not hard for us to think, right? You and I, we have family members who have passed away, brothers or sisters, moms or dads, even sons or daughters. Think of the joy, the joy we would have to see those whom we love so dearly back into our lives. She loved her brother. Another angle to consider is the unique arrangements of these three siblings. It seems rather strange how there's no reference to any parents or any spouses, any children in in all of the Gospels when when they talk about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Just these three. And so chances are Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were dependent on one another. They, they probably lived together. They relied upon one another for the necessities of life. Maybe the two sisters more so. We obviously don't know the details, and so it's, we have to be careful not to speculate too much. But it's not a stretch to think that Mary and Martha lived with Lazarus, and they were all mutually dependent upon one another for their daily needs and income. And so what would Mary and Martha do now without Lazarus? How would they make a living? How vulnerable would they be without his protection, without his care, without his advocacy? I mean, sure, the grief must have been great, but but Mary was about to face a very uncertain future, a very worrisome future without her brother. And Jesus gave not just Lazarus back to Mary, but, she, but he gave her back a future. What, what a relief. What comfort. And finally, friends, don't, don't, I, I don't think the spiritual impact was lost on Mary either. You know, as you read the story, it seems that Martha was the thinker and May, Mary was maybe more of the feeler. It was Martha. It was to Martha that Jesus gave his famous statement in John chapter 11, which reads, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to Martha. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That was to Martha because she was asking Jesus questions. Mary, on the other hand, she was too distraught. She was in her house weeping. The first thing she could do when she sees Jesus is fall on her face and simply say, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But just because Mary might have been more of the feeler doesn't mean she didn't carefully process what Jesus' actions and words meant when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, the whole point of the entire section was for Jesus to display his glory for all to see. Do you think that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, would, that it would, have, it would have gone over their heads? Do you think they would have missed it? I'm not thinking so. Mary has now had several weeks to think through all that's happened in that event. And I'm not thinking that the majesty and the glory of Jesus is lost on her. I'm not thinking she's missed all who Jesus is as the giver of life, both here on earth and in heaven forever. And so yes, Jesus gave Lazarus a second lease on life, but even more importantly, Mary and all those who believe in the Lord Jesus now have access to a new and deep supernatural life that comes from the merciful hand of Jesus. And and Mary could see that. And so Mary has a lot to be grateful for, right, First Baptist? Have you ever felt, I'm curious, have you ever felt so thankful for something where no card, no words, no gift could capture the joy and the gratitude you had? It's a strange feeling, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it feels so good to be so thankful. It feels so good to have so much joy in your heart for God or for others that that something great has been given to you. But then on the other hand, there's this frustratingly uh, uh, frustrating piece where it's like you just can't find the right words, you can't find the right gift um, because it, it feels like as soon as you try to express it, it cheapens your feeling a little bit. But you gotta express it. You just have to. That's where Mary's at. And so she takes probably her most valuable possession she has. Something that that I read some scholars say was probably passed down to her from her maybe deceased parents. This family connection then. This expensive ointment, this expensive perfume. She takes that and she just pours it on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her own hair, which we read in the scriptures you know, many, many weeks ago, how, how her hair is her glory. She takes her hair, her glory, and, and uses that to try to evenly distribute the perfume and wipe Jesus' feet. And the room, friends, as we've talked about before, is filled with fragrance. But more so, The room was filled with Mary's love. That's what it was. It was this expression of love, gratitude. Mary could not contain her appreciation, her thankfulness, her love for Jesus. It was this extravagant display, no doubt. But to Mary, as extravagant as it was, it was fitting. It was fitting for a man who is more precious than life. 
Now, do you know who did have a problem with it? Well, Judas had a problem with it. It's not by accident that Mary's actions are set in contrast to Judas's actions. That's part of the story. To understand and appreciate where Mary's coming from, you kind of have to know where Judas is coming from. And so let's, let's take a peek at some of the details we learn about Judas. The first thing we learn is that Judas is a disciple of Jesus. Judas is on the inside. He's one of the twelve. He had a front row seat to everything Jesus said and did. And you know what I find most telling about that? Not just that he saw miracles, not just that he heard this amazing teaching from Jesus, the the master teacher. The thing that sticks out to me about Judas being on the inside is that he knew what Jesus was really like. He saw all the private times of Jesus' life. Like Judas knew that Jesus was the real deal. He knew that Jesus was the real deal. He knew that Jesus wasn't some con artist, some showman in public, and then in private was a scoundrel. No, he knew that Jesus was the same everywhere he went. He knew that Jesus was all that he said and claimed to be. But in spite of Judas being a disciple, having access to the greatest teaching of the world, seeing the miracles of Jesus with his own two eyes, he's also a betrayer. We see that explicitly here in John chapter 12. Judas stabbed Jesus in the back. You know, when you read the Gospel of John in particular, it kind of comes across that maybe John the Apostle, he's he's still not over what Judas did to Jesus. He's still harboring these hard feelings. It's like every chance he gets, he brings up the negative about Judas. And of course, since this is inspired scripture, this is God's word, God wants us to know that this is what Judas was like. Now, on the face of it, Judas' complaint, this criticism against Mary, sounds about right. 300 denarii is the value of, of a, of a working man's income for an entire year. One denarii is one day's labor. And so 300 denarii, 300 days work, it's about a year's worth of work. So in today's day, $30,000, $40,000 worth of work. That's a lot of money. But you know, we, we see from John chapter 12, we know what's going on with Judas. He's a thief. It's all a show. He didn't care about the poor. He cared about himself. And so Jesus commends Mary, criticizes Judas. Mary had this little window of time to honor Jesus before his death. Um, He wasn't going to be around very long. Mary didn't know the details of that, but Jesus, he knew it was coming. And he says, look, I'm not going to be around much longer. Let her worship me. Let her thank me. Let her appreciate me. The poor you'll have forever. For me, right now, she only has me for this brief amount of time. And again, I go back to that contrast between Mary and Judas. In Mary's case, she's filled with joyful gratitude and it bubbles up in extravagant worship and gratitude. And Judas is blind. He's blind to who Jesus is. 
And because he's blind to who Jesus is, he's blind to her expression of love. Or another way of saying it would be, Judas cannot understand why anybody would be so extravagant in their love and appreciation for Jesus. That's something worth thinking about for you and for me. Is there any limit to our love for our Savior? And if there is, why? What can't we see like Judas? What are we missing about our Savior that we might have a similar response to Judas thinking, well, whoa, that seems a little over the top. I think these, these are things worth thinking about. So I want to make a few observations because, again, my, my hope or, or goal in this time in God's word is to try to help us have a display of gratitude, a heart of gratitude, like Mary, to our master Jesus. And so let me just make a few observations and see how they land on you as we, again, press into this Thanksgiving week. You know, friends, gratitude is about seeing rightly. It's the product of recognizing, perceiving the good done to you as a gift of God that is completely undeserved. And Mary had this perspective. She had this vision. She was needy in every way. She lost her brother. Her future was in doubt. Her spiritual condition was exposed. And she saw that in every instance, she was needy, needy for God. And Jesus was the answer for her every time. She saw in Jesus the display of grace. She saw in Jesus this offering of mercy, this offering of blessing. And in that, she received it and then expressed it, expressed her gratitude to the Lord, to Jesus for what he did. Now, one thing I want to mention is that Mary was given that glimpse, friends, through suffering. And I bring that up again to remind you, and I say again because we've been talking a little bit about suffering over the last number of weeks, right? I bring that up to remind you again of the redemptive opportunity that we have through our pains and struggles. And to encourage you, friends, don't curse your pain so quickly. Don't decide too early that there's nothing redeemable about what you're going through. And look, I understand just how unbearable the pain can be at times in our in our most vulnerable moments. It can be hard not to get trapped in bitterness and doubt. But like for Mary, friends, Jesus has got something in mind for you. Way back in the beginning of John chapter 11, he said of Lazarus' illness, he said, this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And friends, I want to remind you again that God has that in store for you. God has his glory and your good in mind as you go through your times of suffering. And so ask God to help you not curse the suffering so quickly, but instead start looking. Start looking for grace. Start looking for hope. Start looking for truth. Because when you see that, you'll have reason to give thanks. I also want to point out to you how self-interest and how self-focus robbed Judas of the ability to see. Now, obviously, Judas has a problem. 
of getting his eyes off of himself. He had a problem not looking towards material or worldly gain as the most important thing in his life. I mean, think of it. If you, if you know the story of how he betrayed Jesus, he, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Anybody who would betray a man for 30 pieces of silver has a problem with worldliness, with material gain. And so consider this. This self-interest, this self-focus is that which kept Judas from being able to see Jesus well and prize him. I'm guessing many of us are going to sit down for a fairly traditional Thanksgiving Day meal over the next week or so. Maybe you've already done that. I love Thanksgiving food. It's my favorite holiday because of the the way everything fits together. I mean, the turkey and the graving and the stuffing and uh, just, all right, just. And so I usually don't eat all day. I don't have breakfast. I don't snack. Thankfully, we usually have Thanksgiving meal around noon, you know. But I want to be able to delight in our Thanksgiving Day feast as much as possible. So I refrain from eating anything. And friends, I want to, remind you that a steady diet of worldliness, a steady diet of the things of the earth, friends, will not make you hungry for Jesus. Earthly success, earthly applause, money, possessions, comfort, satiates our body and soul and spirit in such a way where the success and the applause and the riches and the comforts of heaven are not all that desirable. And so I promise you, I promise you, if you get a dozen donuts an hour or two before Thanksgiving meal and you eat them, you will not be very hungry for your Thanksgiving Day feast. And it's the exact same thing for your soul and spirit. If you are satiated on the things of the earth, if your eyes are focused and you're taking in earthly things, you will not be very stirred and hungry for the righteousness of Christ. And Judas was obsessed with money. We know that from John chapter 12, and that kept him from seeing the glory of Christ. And so I want to encourage you to think about what you are feasting your eyes, your soul, yourself on. You know, there's a reason why fasting is a part of, a, part of our spiritual disciplines. We fast because we're trying to remove from us any taste of worldliness so that the glories of Christ are brought to our spiritual senses in a way where we couldn't, we couldn't identify them, where we couldn't experience them without that fasting. And I just want to encourage you that that, that should be a, a normal course of our life. Not, not necessarily fasting from food on particular days of the week. I'm just talking about when your eyes are set on the things of the earth, you will not delight in the things of heaven. And so that's why we read in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's instruction for us to live the good life, meaning the life following Christ, is to set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated in the heavenly realms. That's what we look at. So with all of these things in mind, if I can encourage you as we close, what might your joyful gratitude look like this Thanksgiving? How extravagant will your worship be? It's not a contest, But what will your worship and gratitude be? Because here's the deal. It will depend on what you see. 
it will depend on what you see. You can't contrive or make up gratitude. It just comes spilling out of you when you perceive the good that God has done for you in Christ and you respond in adoration and worship of gratitude to him. And so friends, look for the splendor of Christ. Look to him and you will be filled with joyful gratitude like Mary. That's God's word for us today.